Good morning. Let's pray. Lord, like we just sang, what riches of kindness you have lavished on us. One of those kindnesses is what we're doing right now, worshiping you together. Another is resting in your finished work, that your blood has, as we sang, fully paid a debt we could never afford. On this Labor Day weekend, remind us, Lord, that it's not the quality of our work that's the measure of our worth, it's the quality of yours. Thank you that in our sacred fellowship through you, we have the privilege of sharing each other's burdens. We continue to pray for Sandy and Mike Witten as Mike has ongoing cancer treatment. Thank you for their testimony of placing their confidence in you. Draw near to them in your limitless power and goodness. We continue to lift up Catherine, Dave, and Baker Driscoll. Comfort the whole Driscoll family as they walk through such a difficult time. We ask that you do more for them than we can think or even imagine. As their and our good and perfect Father, we pray for your inexhaustible mercy and love to surround the Driscolls. In addition to sharing burdens, thank you, Lord, that you allow us to participate in the growing of your kingdom. We praise you for the work you are doing in Romania through Raul and Dana Sharika. Strengthen them through the power of the Holy Spirit as they share life-saving news about you. Speak now through Henry. Grow us as the gospel reverberates through him. Point us to the spring of the water of life. Turn us from the broken cisterns of this world. And then as we go from here, use us for your glory and others' good. In your name and by your power, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 87, or you can look right there in your worship guide on page 12. So this year, in my devotions, I came upon this delightful little verse, Psalm 87, 7 which we're going to read in a moment, and it says this, Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. The singers and dancers are in the temple, and they are saying, All that animates me, all that makes my soul glad, all my delight, all my joy, all my source of meaning, all my springs, all my fountains are in you, O God. You are good enough to make me sing and dance and play instruments. You're my source of joy and happiness. And so I just ask as we begin this morning, what is it that makes you glad this morning? What is it that animates you? Where are you finding rest and joy? Where are you looking for true happiness And the singers and dancers say the best and true answer to that is in God himself. So let's read the psalm this morning and see how they got there. Psalm 87, hear the word of God. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among all those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush, this one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. 
for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the way you have revealed yourself and made yourself known through many authors over many years, all pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we can look at your word this morning. Would you grant your Holy Spirit, grant us true and right affections and perspectives on life as we look at this psalm this morning. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 87 breaks down nicely into three parts. Verses 1 through 3, we see the glory of the city of Zion. Some, some translations have a selah after that, which is a, 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 pa- a musical pause or a reflective pause. And then verse 4 through 6, we have the inhabitants of Zion. And verse 7 talks about the worship of Zion. So let's talk about that this morning. The glory of Zion, the inhabitants of Zion, and the worship of Zion. Notice first the glory of the city of Zion in verse 1 through 3. In the Bible, the word Zion is used in many different ways. Um, At its root, the word means fortification or something, and it communicates the idea of something being raised up. But Zion is a fortress that David captures. Zion is also used for the city of Jerusalem. And then when Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, the temple was also known as Zion or being on Mount Zion. So Jeremiah says, come, let's go up to Zion to the Lord our God. So Zion was this dwelling place of the Lord our God. It's where he set his temple. It's where he set his presence. God said, I will put my name there. My eyes and my heart will be in this place. He commanded them to offer sacrifices in the temple so that they could know that they would be accepted by him. So God's glory is in Zion. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, Zion also refers to the people of Israel themselves. But notice what it says in these first few verses. It says that first that God established Zion in verse 1. On the holy mount stands the city that he founded. That means God chose this place. God chose this geographical location. He chose this mountain. He chose this place to be the place where he would put his name and he would reveal himself to his people and meet with his people. He chose this mountain. The mountain became holy because God set it apart for his purposes. It's this place of sacrifice, this place of praise. Mount Zion is the dwelling place of God. He is the one who ordained it and set it apart for his use. Then verse 2 says, the Lord loves Zion. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. He loves the gates of the city, meaning the city itself. The Lord loves that more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Why does God love Zion more? Because it's the place where he meets with his people. It's the place he's called his people to gather and worship him. 
And so God has this deep love for this city. And um, then verse 3 says, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. This not only includes the buildings and the architecture, because it was impressive, but this is God's city, the place where he dwells and meets with his people, the place where he manifests his glory, the place where he reveals himself and makes his glory known. You get this. Zion is glorious because God is there. It's the place where he dwells. Glorious things were spoken about God in the Old Testament or Zion. It says, for example, in Psalm 48, verse 1 and 2, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north. John Newton, many of you know, is the famous hymn writer. He's best known for writing Amazing Grace. But this verse was the basis of a hymn that we're going to sing in a few moments. Glorious things of thee are spoken. Verse 1 says this. Glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken. Formed thee for his own abode. Don't you see how wonderfully John Newton captured that? That God created Zion for his own abode, on the rock of ages founded. What can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's wall surround us, surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. So God's city was glorious because he was there. But we need to ask this. What do we think about that now? Where is, where is God's dwelling place now? Well, Zion is replaced, the city of God in the Old Testament is replaced by the church in the New Testament. So you need to make this jump as you read a passage like this from the Old Testament to the New Testament and think about where we are in redemptive history. Where does God dwell with men now? Not in Mount Zion. To go there would be to go backwards. Now God dwells with his people in the church, the holy community that he has set apart for his own. Zion is replaced by the church in the New Testament. Um, And it it is perfectly clear in the New Testament that we are the temple of God. We're this holy building that he is building as we come to him. Uh, We're also called the house of God in the New Testament. Hebrews said Jesus is a great priest over the house of God. Charles Spurgeon says, although glorious things were taught in Jerusalem street and seen in her temples, yet this is more true of the church. She is founded on her grace. She is founded on grace, and her pinnacles glow with glory. And so, do you see this? The New Testament invites us to see the church, the covenant people, in a, in a glorious cosmic sort of context that we're the place where God is dwelling now. The church has been established by God. It said that God set the foundations of Zion in the Old Testament. The church is now been founded by God. Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We also see that uh, God laid the foundations of the church. Um, It was in his immutable, invincible, eternal decree that he declared the church would be the place where he set his glory. And so we can say this way, as Zion was God's project in the Old Testament, so now the church is God's project. 
But we need to make one more jump. Where will God's dwelling place be in the future? Not in the earthly church, in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the new Jerusalem. So even the church is only a small foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. And we should be looking there. Indeed, our worship is even there now. Hebrews 2 tells us, rather than Sinai, we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's us, brothers and sisters. And to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So the dwelling place of God was in Zion, and now it's in the church, but our ultimate dwelling place is in heaven. And so we rejoice in that when we think about Zion, the city of God. Now let's think, secondly, about the inhabitants of Zion. In verse 4, notice what it says. Uh, The psalmist say, among those who know me, he's talking about God speaking, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. The people who read that would have understood that. We have to look these things up to really understand our Bibles well. Rahab stands for Egypt. Egypt was the great nation in the south. Babylon was the great power to the east. Philistia was the great power to the west. And Tyre was this powerful city-state to the north. Cush, which also stands for Ethiopia, is often used in the Bible as a far distant nation a place distant from God. And so if you're going to use some Alabama vernacular for this passage, you would say that in the church, among those who know God will be people from Florida and people from Georgia, good news for John Fountain, and people from Mississippi and people from Tennessee and even maybe some people from Oregon. Or maybe we should say Cuba because Ethiopia was actually south of the southern place. You see what I'm saying? The people who read this knew what these places stood for, and they could say what God is saying is all the nations surrounding us will be a part of the people of God. And, And what's also interesting, these locations had moral connotations too. Think about it. Egypt and Babylon were two of the great enemies of God's people. God's people were held prisoners. They became slaves in Egypt, and God had to miraculously deliver them through Moses. And Babylon was that nation from the east that came down swooping in and carried away God's people into exile, with Jeremiah being in exile and the exiles being there for 70 years. These were the great enemies of God. And as we go on, Egypt was very well known for being proud Babylon was known for being worldly. Philistia was known for being wrathful. Tyre was this impressive city-state. It was known for being covetous. And Cush and Ethiopia were known for being far away. You see what God's saying? God's saying, I'm going to make even my enemies to be my friends. In my eternal kingdom. There will be people who have opposed me. There will be people like the Apostle Paul who came against the church, who will be part of the people of God. The kingdom of God will be filled with proud people, wrathful people, worldly people, 
And God is going to do something glorious. He's going to bring, bring sinful people from all these different places to be a part of His people. And brothers and sisters, that includes us. Notice what it says in, in verse 4. It says, among those who know me, I mentioned these, these nations. God says these nations are going to be people who know me. They know me in a saving way. They have a relationship with me. They worship me. They come to my house. They're going to know me. And then interestingly, it's kind of hard to tell what's going on here. Three times it says this one was born there. And it may be that the first time it's the Jewish people sort of opposing and saying, well, the Jewish people say, well, this one was born in Zion. But as it goes on, it clearly is saying, verse 5, and of Zion it shall be said, this one was born in her. The Most High himself will establish her. And then verse 6, the Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. What that is saying to us is that God is going to take people from all these nations and their name is going to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And it's going to be they are born into the people of God. They are born into the family of faith, the household of God's people. God's enemies who have opposed him are going to be brought into his kingdom. And so this is, this is a, this psalm is clearly prophetic. This didn't happen in the Old Testament. You understand that, right? This was fulfilled in the New Testament era. It, we saw it at Pentecost, that people from all different nations came to Jerusalem and heard the gospel proclaimed in their own language. We saw it in the book of Acts where the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the remotest parts of the earth in the in the journeys of the Apostle Paul. We see this in the book of Revelation, that Revelation says there's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation surrounding God's throne. This is the testimony of not only this passage, but the whole Old Testament. Micah 4, 1 and 2, in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. Again, this is all fulfilled in the New Testament. Is it people from every tribe, tongue, and nation? And that's what's happening in the church right now. Is that God is saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. How glorious a thing that we are joined to. We are part of the city of God. We are part of the people of God. Several years ago, there was a missions praise song, maybe 25 or 30 years ago. I'm not sure why we don't sing it anymore. But shout to the north and the south. And it says this, shout to the north and the south. Sing to the east and the west. Jesus is Savior of all. He is Lord of heaven and earth. Amen. We should shout to the north and the south. We should sing to the east and the west because Jesus is the Savior of all, and He is building His church of all nations. There's some great pictures of the people of God in the, in the book of Revelation. There's going to be this 144,000, which is not a literal number, but it just means the perfect people of God gathered around His throne in the New Jerusalem. I've already mentioned it says there's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this is heady stuff. If you're in here and you're a believer this morning, 
What this means is that in the future, we will have the privilege of joining our brothers and sisters from India and Nepal, from Uganda, from Russia, from China, from Honduras, from Brazil, from all these nations of the world. And guess what? America is going to be one little tiny little sliver. And there are going to be people surrounding the throne of Jesus, worshiping him. That's what this passage is saying. And uh, it's truly exciting. Jesus, you are part of what Jesus is building. So when you walk into your office on Monday morning, you can think, "This this is my true citizenship. This is where I really belong. I'm part of the people of God. And when you drive into your neighborhood Your real residence is above. It also means this, you're safe and secure. This is the most fundamental thing that's true about you if you're a believer this morning, is that Jesus has connected you to his eternal kingdom, and it's an unshakable kingdom that you and I get to be a part of. And all this leads to the third point. The third point is the springs of joy that we see in Zion, we see in the worship of Zion. In verse 7 It says, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. The singers and dancers, some say uh, players of instruments, singers and player of instruments. Some translations say that. It refers to those who worshiped in the Old Testament. And what are they saying? They are saying unto God, all my springs are in you. Sometimes when we do meditate on God's word, we need to go one word at a time. All. Not some of my springs are in you. Not most of my springs are in you. All my springs are in you. All my. Every single person in this sanctuary this morning, you have to personalize this. Where are your springs? Where are my springs? All my springs, all those things that animate me, that bring me joy that bring me happiness, that make me feel secure, all the things I'm trusting in, all the things I'm hoping in, all my springs, all my springs are in you, are in God himself. You see, this is the great, uh, this is the great goal of the Christian life in some ways is to set your affections on God. And one question we have to ask when we get to this last verse when it says singers and dancers alike say all my springs are in you. Does that mean all my springs are in Zion, the city of God where he comes and meets with us? Or is it talking about all my springs are in God himself? And I'm, you know the answer. The answer is both. <laughs> it says, all my springs are in you. You know, it's so easy to find other springs. Mark alluded to this in his prayer, um, that we dig, so often, we dig broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what Jeremiah says. We, we have springs that we rely on. Uh, I, uh, I read a psalm this morning, it's, uh, this week. It says, if riches increase, do not set your heart on them. And I would imagine in our church that would be a particular temptation that we might set our hearts on riches and it become a spring to us. 
There's money, sex, and power. There's comfort and ease, security, all sorts of worldly interest, things that can be good in and of themselves, but they can become springs to our idolatrous hearts. So how do we find our springs in God? How do we get to this place? There's another psalm that I think helps us. Psalm 48, verse 12 through 14 says this about Zion. It says, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. You see what he's saying? He's saying it's going to take a little mental work on your part. Go around the city of God. Think about the towers. Think about the ramparts. Look at, observe what God is doing. So let's think about that when it comes to the church. All my springs are in the church. And then we'll think about that when it comes to God. Um, We can think about the the wonderful history of the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. 2,000 years later, the church is still going. We've seen it spread across the globe. We can think about the geography. The church has gone to so many different nations. The most striking thing about the Global Missions Festival last year to me was the picture from Third Mill that showed the anticipated growth of the global church by 2050 and anticipated that in North America there would be 7 million Christians, in South America 73 million Christians, in Europe 171 million Christians, in Australia 6 million Christians, and this is the one that's unbelievable, in Africa 589 million Christians. If growth continues on the way it's been. Jesus is building his church. We think about the geography of the church. We think about the spirituality of the church. There's the constant presence of the Holy Spirit in the church, enabling it to be salt and light and a spiritual presence among people. Uh, We can think about the glorious songs of praise. Church history is so fascinating. And as you read hymns from across the ages, in every age, there have been people whom the Spirit of God has worked in their hearts and they write these delightful, lovely songs of praise and worship to God. And why do I say that? Well, the last thing, by the way, and the king and head of the church is Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing. Why do I say this? Because in some ways, it's in vogue right now to sort of diss the church and point out her imperfections. And I think we need to be careful with that mindset. Why? Because the church is the institution that Jesus has established. He has founded it. Jesus loves the church. The church is the place where Jesus has put and manifest his glory. Yes, We should repent when the church is in error, when we've done wrong. We should repent individually, but we should also repent as a denomination and corporately as the church when we are in error. But I also want you to be reminded that the Apostle Paul persecuted and opposed the church because he was opposed to Jesus until Jesus saved him. 
So we need to take some of the criticism of the church with a grain of salt. Um, we need to have this deep affection, beloved, for the church. And I think in covenant, in one sense, I'm preaching to the choir. Years ago, Kevin DeYoung wrote a book called Why We Love the Church in Praise of Institutions and Organized Religion. Such a great book. We need a lot more books like that. And he's saying the same thing in all its imperfections and shortcomings. The church is where Jesus has put his glory. Yes, the church has imperfections. That's the whole point. Interesting about this psalm, it's written by the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah rebelled against Moses and Aaron and Miriam in the Old Testament, and many of them were swallowed up into the ground, and yet God promised He would not wipe them out. And here they are, centuries later, writing psalms of praise and worship in the household of God. What a wonderful picture of grace. So consider the ramparts of the church. Consider also the ramparts of God. We're about finished, but just give you one example from the Psalms that help us consider the character of God. Psalm 36, verse 5 through 9, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heaven, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So I ask you, believer in Jesus Christ, in God the Father, and in the Holy Spirit, consider the Lord your God. Consider His glory, His weightiness. God is, is weighty in everything He does. His love is weighty, His majesty is weighty, His splendor is weighty, His kingdom is weighty, His mercy is weighty, His kindness is weighty, His creativity is weighty, His wisdom is weighty, and so is His salvation. And one thing I love about the the worship at Covenant every week, we come and we sing such rich gospel songs, and we celebrate the work of Jesus Christ on our, half, on our behalf. And every week you are given an opportunity to, to come and think about how all your springs can be found in God. God's salvation through Christ is weighty. He sent His Son. He came in the flesh to rescue us. His gospel is weighty. His salvation through Christ is weighty. Last weekend I had the privilege of officiating my son's wedding in Tybee Island, Georgia. Uh, it's the last child to get married. My second son that I officiated. The second wedding I've done this month. This was my younger son. And several of you have asked me, did you cry? Of course I cried. I don't trust men who don't cry. <laughs> so I cried four times. I, I cried at the rehearsal. When you go through the wedding with the couple, with the bride and groom, and you say, tomorrow I'm going to say this to you. Henry, my son, will you have this woman to be your wife? And I started crying when I was just reading that. (laughs) Um, And then on the day of the wedding, uh, it was an open-air wedding outside in front of this, underneath these beautiful uh, live oak trees with Spanish moss, and I was sitting on the steps of this hotel-type place, and as Henry's bride came around the corner of the building, all the bridesmaids, all the groomsmen and all the bridesmaids had come down and I'm standing there with my son. He hadn't seen her that day, so he turns away and she's coming on the side and I just start boohooing. 
was like, okay, Lord, I got to get it together here. I got to do a wedding in a, approximately 37 seconds. Uh, and, then, and then we went through the vows. I, I teared up. But you know when I te- teared up the most? The father-daughter dance. My son's wife is 30 years old. He's 26. She's not dated a lot. She's gorgeous. She's lovely. But she's not dated guys like seriously. And when her dad brought her out there, I was so overcome by emotion. For 30 years, he has been loving on and raising this daughter to give her away. And my thought was, son, you better do right. (laughs) And I just was crying. I was weeping. It was unanticipated. But it made me think. Jesus was not a bride, but he was the bridegroom. It made me think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God's loving heart gave the son for us. And Jesus will be faithful to us. He never vacillates. We do. He doesn't. He will stick by us to the end. His love has no expiration date, as Dane Ortland says. He never looks for an off-ramp. Jesus is so committed to you. We're getting ready to celebrate that at the table in one minute. So, believers, the great goal of the Christian life is for you to transfer your affections from the things of the world to the Lord our God and have your hopes and affections and springs there. I'll close with this. Uh, This summer, I went to Jamie Shields' funeral. Um, I have been on staff for a year here, but I did not have the privilege of getting to know Jamie. I just crossed, I passed by Dan Edwards' office many a day, and Dan and Jamie were in there praying and having Bible study, but I didn't have a privilege of getting to know him. But at his funeral, his, his children all stood up, and this is what they said. They said, my dad loved God He loved the Bible. He loved Jesus. He loved the church. He loved people. And he laid down his life to serve others. And I was so cut to the heart by that. I was like, Lord, that's what I want to be said at the end of my life. And I would say, Jamie Shields is a man who said, all my springs are in you, O God. And that's what Jesus invites each of you to. He invites you to find your springs in him. Let's pray. Lord, we're so humbled by your grace. We're astounded at the the greatness of your plan to bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that includes us. We're so humbled by that, and we're thankful. And now as we move to your table, may our minds and hearts be set more deeply on you. May we find our springs, O God, in you. In Jesus' name, amen.